Welcome everyone to this last full day of our March session, our last session during our Bardo practice period. How interesting that the wave of death is progressing across the world, across the United States, towards the end of our Bardo practice period. Bardo means transition. This is a time of perhaps profound transition in the world. This is uh, the first page my printer printed out. When I printed out this talk, it's about how to make your own face mask. So we may be sewing face masks here at the monastery since there's a shortage, and although what we sew wouldn't be surgical grade or N95 grade, it could be very helpful in hospitals where, or clinics where they need people just to have a mask when they come in the door, so that if they cough, it doesn't um, spread. Or for people who are going shopping, uh, in going out and doing the shopping in this time, it's probably wise to wear a mask, if only to help you remember not to touch your face and to help people keep appropriate social distance. And we have a lot of material scraps here, and there are people all over the country who are very eager to do something to help while they're in self-quarantine or in forced quarantine. And uh, sewing helps us feel like we're doing something. Here we are doing something. Anyone who's practicing during this time is doing something very important. People are distressed all over the world. In some place, places, extremely distressed and extremely fearful. We are practicing for them. When a wave of death rolls over the world, and social media lets us watch it approach and see the suffering that it leaves in its wake, like the trenches that they're dig digging that can be seen by satellite in Iran for the dead. Fear arises, or at least, since it hasn't touched us yet, persistent anxiety, which is one of the milder forms of fear but is the persistent destroyer of happiness in our society, even when we're not threatened by COVID. Fear is the mind killer. One of my favorite quotes, fear is the mind killer. It comes from the group of books in the Dune, in the Dune trilogy. I think it's a trilogy. And it was a litany that was recited when you were training with the Beni Gesaret, who faced great danger during their training. And in, I think, the first Dune book, Paul Atreides, who was the son of Duke Leto Atreides I, was being trained by the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohiam. And part of the training that was that you were compelled to put your hand in a device that caused extreme pain. 
as a test of presence of mind. And he recited this litany as he was undergoing this extremely painful trial, agonizing. And it was described as a test of his humanity in a qualitative sense. A person whose nature is still primarily bestial recoils from pain and seeks to flee it to preserve themselves. A person of higher nature goes through it and out the other side in order to remove the threat permanently. In order to remove the threat permanently. So we are all now under conditions in which we are not undergoing agony yet, but difficulty in being self-quarantined. In talking with my friends around the world, they say the first week is kind of nice to let go of everything that's been keeping them so occupied and busy. And then the second week it gets a little boring. And the third week, their children are fighting with each other. And everyone wants to break quarantine and go out to a bar, find a bar that's open. Which reminds me, liquor stores, there's a debate in different cities that are shutting down whether liquor stores should be open or not. In New York City, they felt it was essential. So there's a lot of lonely drinking going on, which is a big help. She said, sarcastically, fear is the mind killer. Um, A few days ago, I gave you an update because we don't want it to be a huge shock when you come out of this this nine days of not only self-quarantine, but quarantine from the news. An update, there are about a third of a million confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide. And we think probably for every Confirmed case, there is at least 10 or 20 uh, cases that haven't even been tested. Italy had 793 deaths in one day, setting a record, a world record, higher than China's ever reached for the last two days in a row. They now have 53,000 cases. 5,000 deaths, and 7,000 people who have recovered. It's very interesting to watch as this wave moves across the world how the number of recovered begins to rise. Like the number of recovered is, is good in Asia now. It's a very encouraging. People are recovering, not, but there are still people still ill. And then if you get to the U.S., the number recovered is zero, one, zero usually. In Spain, yesterday, there were almost 5,000 new cases, probably because of increased testing. Uh, And they're going to be using robotic sites to do testing so that they don't expose healthcare workers because they don't have enough preventive gear to dress the healthcare workers in to keep testing. So Spain has a total of 25,000 confirmed cases now with more than 300 deaths. The number of cases uh, have gone up dramatically. As you see, there are 1,612 people in intensive care in Spain, and they are overwhelmed medically. People are in distress all over the world, and we practice for them. 
the governors of New York, California, Illinois, and New Jersey announced a stay-at-home or shelter-in-place order to enforce aggressive social distancing because people were not honoring the more polite requests, to slow the spread of the virus and prevent deaths, and maybe get in some places to where there's effective treatment. There are about 20 drug companies now testing different treatments. And the vaccine will still take about 18 months, 15 to 18 months, to go through all of the levels of trial that are required. But if we can get elderly people to the place of vaccine, that might be helpful, keep them alive that long. And there are some early human trials of a vaccine going on with very brave volunteers because we never know when a vaccine will cause more problems than it cures, which has happened. So there's not yet a lockdown in those uh, places as there are in places in Europe. Lockdown means law enforcement will enforce that you don't come out unless you have a permit to go grocery shopping or to the pharmacy and you can they're putting people in jail in europe who are defying the lockdown in oregon some there's a kind of conflict between is this a shelter in place or a lockdown and just ordered by the governor and the details will be out on monday in New York, all non-essential non businesses, this is New York State, will be closed by tomorrow evening. What can remain open are grocery stores, pharmacies, public transit, and some other places. They add laundromats, banks, and gas stations, and alcohol, maybe, alcohol stores. New York City is uh, now in very dire straits. They have more than 4,000 confirmed cases in New York City, which is almost half of the state's number. Uh, last week, the state had, the entire state had fewer than 800 cases. Now they have over 10,000. So you can see how quickly it escalates once it hits. And that's what we're anticipating and why we're in quarantine. Hospitals are already short of equipment in New York City. They are re reusing masks and slathering them with hand sanitizer at the end of their shift so they can use them at the next shift. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said, I hate to say this, but it's true. We are now the epicenter of this crisis in the U.S. So a few reports from around the world. In South Korea, there have been 8,800 cases with 102 dead, but 1,540 recovered. So about a sixth have recovered so far. In Oregon, we have 137 cases now. 3,000 people have been tested, three deaths, no recoveries. In Washington, over 1,500 cases, 83 deaths, no recoveries in Florida. 563 cases, 11 deaths, partly because of how many elderly people live there in nursing homes and so on. In Pennsylvania, 311 cases known, 
uh, one death. In Poland, 452 cases, five deaths. In Mexico, 203 cases and three deaths. <laughs> All over the world, people are distressed. People are suffering. People are dying. We are practicing for them. A staffer in Vice President Pence's office tested positive, and Pence and his wife are now being tested. They had not done this before, even though they had exposure, but not as intimate exposure before. This is normal. This is normal. We have grown up in a time when this was not normal, so we think it's not normal. Master Shen Ying, the great Chan master, in China and uh, in the monastery in, in New York State and other places, had a motto, this is normal. He advised reciting it any time you were surprised or upset by what was occurring. This is normal. This is normal for humankind. This is normal for the world. In my last talk, I said, this is a time to remember our ancestors and lean back into their example. Many of our ancestors practiced in terrible times, in terrible times, times of long-lasting wars, famine, epidemics, tsunamis, terrible earthquakes. A biography of a relatively modern Korean nun that records her life, which is quite fascinating. She was ordained at 18 and was never taught to meditate until she was in her 30s. She discovered meditation, never taught the sutras. But she heard a voice early in her miserable childhood that said, you have to ordain. So she did. So then in the 30s, she discovered a teacher who taught her meditation, Popshi Sanim. So she studied with Popshi Sanim for quite a while. And then uh, the tradition in, in China and Japan was that you, you entered a practice period and then you could leave and wander around and maybe go to another monastery or visit places, go into hermitage, go up into the forest and practice for a few months. Then you could come back for another three months ongoing training period. So she wrote that at the beginning of the free season, I told Popshisanim that I needed to visit my elder in Magoksa for a short while. So this was another monastery where uh, one of her senior uh, nun friends was staying. Although I arrived there without even my backpack, due to the outbreak of the Korean War, it was three years before I could leave. The communists had threatened to kill the great monks, so many fled to the protection of Magoksa. I organized a hall for the nuns who came, a total of about 30. And they talk, she talks about the practice of the monks and the nuns there until they could leave. The first recorded smallpox epidemic in Japan was in the 8th century. I found a, a very interesting article about uh, smallpox epidemics in Japan, since this is a Japanese tradition, and many of the ancestors whose names we recite in our lineage were from Japan. 
The first recorded smallpox epidemic in Japan was in the 8th century. The smallpox that started in 735, it ended two years later, ravaged the country and killed approximately one-third of the entire population in two years. Later, 28 smallpox epidemics were recorded between 737 and 1206. So 1206 is when Dogen's injury was six years old. Among these epidemics, there was a clear trend of progressively shortening of the intervals between two epidemics. Until the year, until the year 1000, smallpox visited Japan with the interval of 24 years on average. So the Japanese, since ancient times, have kept very careful records nationally and then in all the villages so they can go back to these records and, and see this. They can chart. In, the, in this paper, they have charts of when the epidemics happened. Until the year 1000, smallpox visited Japan with the interval of 24 years on average, while between 1001 and 1206, the interval became 13 years. So it shortened by half, became more frequent. By the Tokugawa period, or the early modern period in Japan, smallpox was firmly settled as an endemic disease. So there was no cure, there was no treatment, there was no vaccine. It just settled into the country and that's what people expected. Statistics from a village show that the village experienced major outbreaks of smallpox about every 10 years. They also show that about 95% of the deaths from smallpox were those who were under 10 years of age. This epidemiological profile of smallpox in early modern Japan had an important societal conse consequence. Important societal consequence that could happen here. Since victims were almost exclusively children, the management of smallpox became the business of each household. Medical advice books for lay people published during the Edo period often included how to protect one's child from malignant smallpox. Likewise, suffering and recovering from smallpox became an important part of the ritual celebrating the growth of one's child. The ritual was called sasayu and became an important occasion to throw a family party, inviting friends and relatives. So we can imagine in this time, when the all-clear signal is sounded, which could be a few months from now, or it could be 15 or 18 months from now, we don't know. Because there'll likely be, as there are in some of the countries that are have, in Asia that have recovered, quote, recovered, now they're seeing smaller outbreaks. So when that ends, there could be parties everywhere. Bars open, restaurants open, people can congregate in groups larger than 10 or 25. In Oregon, by the way, it's now 25, so we're exactly right. <laughs> and through the miracle of modern media, we can include many other people. This management of the, of the smallpox of one's child was integrated into the management of the household during Kokugawa period. So it just became part of ordinary life and every generation had to deal with it. And they would hand down information about how to manage it and had ceremonial aspects 
like we have the musical ceremony for handling death in childhood. And the tradition at the time was that a child did not become a real human being until they were age seven. So before that, they were still in the realm of the gods, and the gods could yank them back any time. And they actually didn't get a name until they were seven. Because then, by then, you know, there was the possibility they would live. So they became a person. While in the ancient period, an epidemic of smallpox covered the entire country in a single wave, during the Tokugawa period, the disease lost its nationwide coverage. Smallpox became spatially limited in its diffusion, ceasing to be an event for the state under the shogunate or the domain rule by the daimyos. Instead, it became the affair of local villages. Well, we've already, um, Trump told the governors in his call with them that um, the federal government was not a shipping clerk and they should find their own respirators. So it has now become an event of states and even local villages here. Diffusion maps from the 18th and 19th centuries show mosaic-like patterns of affected settlements and unaffected settlements in each outbreak. Under such a situation, there was little reason for the state or the domains to think that controlling smallpox was any longer their business. The changing spatial profile of smallpox thus separated anti-smallpox measures from the worldviews of the elite states and the domains and integrated them into those of the common villagers. People in the village were left free to inscribe their belief onto anti-smallpox measures. So there are already a lot of fake bits of information circulating, uh, which I've tried to help people in our sangha understand are fake, like the virus uh, doesn't, doesn't like heat, can be killed by heat, so you should drink a lot of hot tea. Um, it would have to be scalding hot to kill the virus, and it would kill your throat, too. So there's a lot of uh, crazy stuff going around. Folkloric religions and local customs became backbones of the rituals for smallpox. People made offerings of food to the demons of the disease and danced to music to guide them out of the villages, guide the demons out. But people in cities became so used to frequent epidemics and they stayed put. But people in these isolated regions who didn't experience the, the, the epidemics as often would practice spatial quarantine. Oh, interesting spatial quarantine, or flee their villages, leaving sick people behind. Including, of course, sick children. So, we're not free from this, from magic. Oh God of Purell, <laughs> please save me from death. I will buy you forever and ever if you'll just save me from death. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And save my family and all the people I love and my sangha 
and the people in Italy that I know, and the people in Italy I don't know, and the people in Spain I know, and the people in Spain I don't know. And The situation the world is in, the situation Oregon is in, the situation this monastery is in, the situation all of our Sangha members are in, is normal, is normal. We practice for all of those who have suffered and are suffering at this moment. So this is becoming increasingly important. What is the essence of practice? This thing we call practice that we're doing to help relieve our own suffering and the suffering in the world. What is the essence of this thing we call practice? It is seeing through the smoke screen of the small mind in order to experience the all-embracing support of what Basho called unborn mind. Abanke called unborn mind. Unborn means never born. Unborn means never born, therefore never dying. Buddha called it the unconditioned. This word, the unconditioned, is really important. The unconditioned, it means nothing gives rise to it. All of our thoughts are conditioned. That is, each one has causes. The cause could be a combination of body sensations, a bit of a sore throat when you wake up in the morning. Thoughts arise, what if I have COVID? What if I've already spread it to others? What if they die and I caused it? What if I die? What if I can't maintain clarity of mind as I'm dying? What if my practice abandons me? Will I go through a horrible bardo experience with demons attacking me? We don't have a legal cemetery yet because the county and their surveyor said it would cost $10,000. What if bodies pile up here like they are in Italy? So what demons are attacking your mind right now? This is the bardo. This is the transition right here. What demons are attacking your mind? The demons of your own mind, all over the country, the demons are attacking people's minds. We are going through a transition. Transitions offer the chance to make changes in a beneficial direction. If we are not afraid. If we are not afraid. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the killer of our ability to enter the unborn mind, the mind that has no location. When you are born, when Buddhas appear, it does not arise with them. Nothing is added when you are born or when a Buddha is born. When you die, when Buddhas die, it does not die. It does not shrink by one molecule. Buddhas do not have more of it. You do not have less of it. 
It has no rank, no form, and no name. It has all ranks, all forms, and all names. It is the body of totality of all things. You cannot grasp it, you cannot throw it away. It is unattainable, but it penetrates your whole body, heart, and mind. The whole body of everyone in this world, of every being, of everything we call a non-being. It penetrates the whole universe. From the highest heaven to the deepest hell, all realms are illuminated perfectly, no matter what realm we're in. Hellish realms, hungry ghost realms, animal realms, human realm, Ashura realm, God-like realms. It penetrates to all realms. It is beyond any realm. It is always available no matter what realm we're in, no matter what realm we cycle through during the day. It is wondrous, inconceivable, subtle luminosity. What is essential to realizing this unborn mind is what the Buddhist masters of many different traditions exhort us to. Let go now of thinking mind. Let go now of thinking mind. To think of non-thinking. How to do that? Non-thinking. to just not propagate thoughts, and they will not continue themselves. Just allow them to go their way. All of our chants are constantly telling us. All the masters are constantly telling us. Here's Bonke's letter. To a woman, a student and disciple and supporter who was about 20 years old. And she supported Banquet throughout his career. This is from 1656. Allow me to address you this brief message concerning your religious practice. As your thoughts haven't yet stopped, you must make every effort to rouse your faith, completely forgetting all thoughts of every sort, thoughts of cherishing good and loathing evil, of loving or hating or worldly affairs, of cherishing Buddhahood, of loathing delusion or cherishing enlightenment. If nothing at all remains in your mind, then your religious practice is complete. By assiduously arousing your faith, you'll escape these delusions quickly. When you have escaped them, I'll know it, and at that time, I'll be able to give my acknowledgement to that one who has escaped. The escape isn't running from the village where there's smallpox, which undoubtedly existed in Bonke's time. He describes the true escape to the inner refuge, to the inner home, which always is with us. And this is from uh, Ajahn Chah, the, the Thai forest monk who is very direct and salty. I call him like an honorary Zen master. I don't know if he'd like that or not. (laughs) So he's talking about um, 
a monk in the time of the Buddha whose name was Tucho Potila. This monk was one of the Buddha's most learned disciples, thoroughly versed in the scriptures and text. He was so famous that he was revered by people everywhere and had 18 monasteries under his care. When people heard the name Tucho Potila, they were awestruck and nobody would dare question anything that he taught. So much did they revere his command of the teachings. One day he went to pay respects to the Buddha. As he was paying his respects, the Buddha said, Ah, hello, venerable empty scripture. Just like that. They conversed for a while until it was time to go. And then as he was taking leave of the Buddha, the Buddha said, Oh, leaving now, venerable empty scripture? That was what the Buddha said on arriving. Oh, hello, venerable empty scripture. When it was time to go, ah, leaving now, venerable empty scripture. That was the teaching the Buddha gave. Tuchapotila was puzzled. Why did the Buddha say that? What did he mean? He thought and thought, turning over everything he had learned until eventually he realized, it's true, venerable empty scripture, that's me, a monk who studies but doesn't practice. When he looked into his heart, he saw that really he was no different from lay people. Whatever they aspired to, he also aspired to. Whatever they enjoyed, he also enjoyed. There was no truly profound quality capable of firmly establishing him in the noble way and providing true peace. So he decided to practice, but there was nowhere for him to go. All the teachers around were his own students. No one would dare accept him. Usually when people meet their teacher, they become timid and deferential, so no one would dare to become his teacher. Finally, he went to see a certain young novice who was enlightened and asked to practice under him. The novice said, yes, sure, you can practice with me, but only if you're sincere. If you're not sincere, then I won't accept you. Tucho Potila pledged himself as a student of the novice. The novice then told him to put on all his robes. Now there happened to be a muddy bog nearby. When Tucho Potila had carefully put on all his robes, expensive ones they were too, the novice said, okay now, run down into that bog. If I don't tell you to stop, don't stop. If I don't tell you to come out, don't come out, okay, run. <laughs> Tucho Potila, neatly robed, plunged into the bog. The novice didn't tell him to stop until he was completely covered in mud. Finally, the novice said, you can stop now. So we stopped. Okay, come on up. And he came out. Clearly, Tucho Potila had given up his pride. He was ready to accept the teaching. So the young novice seeing this knew that he was sincerely determined to practice and gave him a teaching. He taught him to observe sense objects using the simile of a man catching a lizard hiding in a termite mound. If the mound has six holes in it, how can he catch the lizard? He must seal off five of the holes and just leave one open. Then he simply has to wait and watch, guarding that one hole. When the lizard comes out, he can catch it. Meditation is like catching the lizard. We use sati, quality of mindfulness, to note the breath. So this is concentration practice. Concentrating on one aspect of practice, like breath or sound. Vitally important, no matter how long you've been practicing, no matter how advanced you think you are. 
always concentration serves us. It's a foundation for our practice. So then um, he talks a little bit more about uh, observing the mind. So with regard to the mind, Tucho Potila followed the instructions of the novice, breathing in, breathing out, mindfully aware of each breath, until he saw the liar within him, the lying of his own mind. He saw the defilements as they came up, just like the lizard coming out of the termite mound. He saw them and perceived their true nature as soon as they arose. He noticed how one minute the mind would concoct one thing, the next moment something else. Thinking is a sankara dhamma, something that is created or concocted from supporting conditions. It's not asankata dhamma, the unconditioned. The well-trained mind, one with perfect awareness, does not concoct mental states. This kind of mind penetrates to the noble truths and transcends any need to depend upon externals. To know the noble truth is to know the truth. The proliferating mind tries to avoid this truth, saying, that's good, or this is beautiful. But if there is Buddha, what we call Buddha nature, in the mind, it can no longer deceive us, because we, the, we know the mind as it is. The mind can no longer create deluded mental states, because there is the clear awareness that all mental states are unstable, imperfect, and a source of suffering to one who clings to them. So as many of the sutras tell us, it's clinging, proliferation, that's the problem. To recognize, and this is the teaching also of Byron Katie, to recognize that's just a thought. It has no weight. It has no truth in it. And then to examine it carefully and see where it's faulty, where it's lying. Wherever he went, the one who knows was constantly in Tucho Potila's mind. He observed the various creations and proliferations of the mind with understanding. He saw how the mind lied in so many ways. He grasped the essence of the practice. The lying mind is the one to watch. This is the mind that leads us into extremes of happiness and suffering and causes us to endlessly spin around in the cycle of samsara with its pleasure and pain, good and evil. Tuchopotila realized the truth and grasped the essence of the practice. It's the same for all of us. Only this mind is important. That's why we train the mind. This one who knows is a step beyond the mind. So now he's beginning to move into what we would call original mind or awareness, pure awareness. This one who knows is a step beyond the mind. It is that which knows the state of the mind. So as soon as we pop up out of the mind into awareness, then we and observe the mind, then, as I've said many times, we have choice, and choice means freedom. So we're not caught, tethered to our thoughts. That which knows the mind as simply mind is the one who knows. The one who knows is above the mind, and that is how it is able to look after the mind, to teach the mind to know what is right and what is wrong. In the the end, everything comes back to the proliferating mind. 
If the mind is caught up in its proliferations, there is no awareness and the practice is fruitless. So we must train this mind to hear the Dhamma, to cultivate the Buddha nature, the clear and radiant awareness. So uses the same terminology in Theravada Buddhism as we do in our practice, luminous awareness. It's in our chant. It's also in the Tibetan tradition. And luminous means self-illuminating. That when we throw something into it and we just sit and wait, illumination will come. We'll be able to see clearly the truth. The clear and radiant awareness, that which exists above and beyond the ordinary mind and knows all that goes on within it. Seeing in this way, we will understand that the mind is transient, imperfect, and ownerless. There is no owner of it. There is just activity. So I have many, many more examples I'm collecting from all the Buddhist traditions where we're exhorted, stop thinking. Stop thinking. Beyond thinking is clear, open awareness. And if you can sit in it for three breaths, mind-free interval, thought-free space, for three breaths, the door begins to open. The Dharma gate begins to open. The Dharma gate to liberation begins to open. And if we can increase those intervals, The door opens wider and wider. And it doesn't mean to be stuck in not thinking at all, but like I was teaching in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the mind, we we could call it a screen since that's a beautiful computer analogy, clear the mind screen, clear the computer screen of the mind, except the computer screen of the mind has no edges and no center and has existed internally, eternally, will have no end, but our little mind is kind of a reflection of that, so we clear our <coughs> little mind. And then we can see things drift through, like things in our, what do you call it, your screensaver. Like your screensaver is like, goes through. Like a little wiggly thing, that's a thought, or that's an emotion. But where we place our awareness is in the vast luminous screen of awareness. The situation the world is in, the situation Oregon is in, the situation this monastery is in, is normal. We practice for all of those who have been suffering in the past, epidemics, earthquakes, tsunamis, terrible tragedies, wars that go on for a hundred years, refugees, everything we're experiencing now in this, in this time has occurred endlessly in the world of samsara. We're practicing for all of those who have suffered in the past and are suffering at this moment. We practice to end our own suffering so that we can lessen by even one and minus one the suffering in this world, or N minus 25. 
to keep alive the determination of our ancestors, to make their clarity and compassion our own, to be able to pass on this most precious gift, the gift of no fear. Please use whatever energy of anxiety or of fear arises within your body, heart, and mind and turn it to good use to delve deeper into practice with determination to become clearer, ever clearer. That's always my prayer when I bow. To become ever clearer so that you will be better able to serve in this world of ending, unending samsara. Because you know for yourself that it is also the world of nirvana. Thank you.